Big Ideas, TXST, Episode 4, is a continuation of an interview about coronavirus with Dr. Rodney Rohde, virologist and director of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program. The first half of Dr. Rohde's interview may be found in Episode 3. And again, we're joined right now by Dr. Rodney Rohde um, from Texas State University uh, discussing the coronavirus. And Dr. Rohde, just a couple more questions for you. Um, when, when we look at this, and clearly this is your line of work, this is what you do. You've written extensively about it. Others have as well. Um, how have your views on this, not necessarily views, but your understanding of it changed um, from maybe when it first presented in January to now here in almost middle March in terms of maybe seriousness or um, what this thing is doing versus what maybe people thought it would do? Yeah, great, great question. Um, you know, as a scientist, I hope that I can state uh, that I am adaptable, just like a virus is. So, you know, when it first came out, I mean, I remember it starting being reported, and I actually did an early interview about this on the local television station about when it wasn't even named yet. And uh, at the time, you know, it, it was kind of scary, but it's kind of how SARS, or the first SARS strain kind of happened. And so I think early on, we were all hoping that it would die out, you know, in that location, you know, not that we are got any issues with China, but we are just hoping it can be contained mm -hmm. and die in that situation and maybe just hop around a little bit. I think I was surprised at how rapidly it spread across the, across the world. Uh, not, not in the sense that I didn't know viruses did that, but that this particular virus did it so rapidly. You know, as I uh, watch it right now, I think my opinion is, is changed a little bit with respect to how critical it is that we as a country, so in the U.S., prioritize testing um, for elderly and high-risk populations. And again, I'm going to go back to protecting my colleagues across all healthcare spectrums because that's my biggest concern right now. Early on, I really wasn't thinking that way. I was just thinking, well, you know, it's going to stay put or it's going to kind of burn through. It's going to be common cold kind of issues. Maybe, you know, maybe we have a little fatality, but it's changed, obviously. And so that's, that's my primary concern. And with testing right now, and this is something you've kind of seen bubble up in the, the news well also, is that right now, to my understanding, Texas has about 10 labs that are approved to do this. And as of a couple of days ago, the numbers were that they could do about 26 tests per day. Doesn't take long to think mm -hmm. about how prioritizing is going to be important. Um, and we don't know, right? We don't know tomorrow a nursing home in Dallas, Texas, or somewhere could kind of kind of have a similar thing. We need to prepare for that. That is a priority in my mind as a health kind of person. Um, but then the other piece around it is that I continue to try to help maintain some calmness with people because, it, again, I know it's scary. It's on the news every minute. But if you look at the global picture again and kind of think about what's happening, it is a cold virus. Other viruses, you know, unfortunately kill people, usually the immunocompromised and things like that. This is really um, something, if you look at numbers, in the U.S. right now, and again, we don't know all the denominators and numerators, so mm -hmm. let me put that caveat out there. But if you just look at what we're kind of reporting, we're talking about a 2.5% case fatality rate, 1,000 cases, 25 dead. Um, globally, it's about 3.6. It's higher in the elderly, 
It's super low in the young. So, I mean, I know there's that range there. But if we remain in those numbers, you know, we're not spending $8 billion right now for, you know, preventing measles from coming back or from preventing RSV from blowing up or thinking even about flu, right? We've kind of shifted. So I just think, again, this is a public health kind of background is that we don't do enough just for everything. And so that opinion has stayed solid all the way through this. Mm -hmm. So I've been screaming about this for 25 years, like a lot of my colleagues. We need support. We need public support. We need federal support. We need ongoing, eternal, not just funding, but support for new positions, new training programs. People are retiring, I mean, in, in these in these areas. And if you walk into the CDC or in the Texas Department of, of State Health Services, where I used to work, you know, it's it's kind of frightening because you'll see, you know, four people manning a floor of a building that's as big as a football field. And when I was there in the 90s, early 90s, there were 20 or 30. Hmm. So just FTEs, you know, and it's all about funding. Everybody's strapped. But, you know, like education, public health is something I think that has to be a priority. And that's, again, my own personal opinion. From where you sit, what's our responsibility in the media um, in terms of reporting and in accurately reporting in the way that we're portraying the information, what's our, what do we need to do? Do we need to take a step back and maybe start to look at things as you just explained in reversing numbers, not to make it look better, but to paint right. a clearer picture? Yeah. Thank, thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. Um, first of all, let me say I'm not a journalist or a media expert, mm -hmm. uh, but I did and I have continued to do quite a bit of looking at something called social representations theory. This is an old theory, and I did it during my dissertation with respect to MRSA, which is an antibiotic-resistant pathogen, so how people make meaning of complex, scientific, maybe scary topics, and also how people get stigmatized, you know, so Spanish flu. Uh, there was a time that this was being called Wuhan pneumonia, mm -hmm. and, and the to its credit, the World Health Organization and uh, the viral taxonomy people uh, moved away from that name. Uh, so just trying to be careful around that um, messaging and branding mm. of viral agents. Now, with respect to telling the story, um, really what we're doing right now, I mean, you, if we can have a moment to talk to experts that are willing to talk and try to explain things in a very common general language it's called science communication and you're trying to raise the health literacy of the country so that people are more knowledgeable about things that might be scary when they come out in the headlines and things like that and then on the other side of that you know as you know accurate reporting checking sources using reputable sources but i i do think we have a personal responsibility myself included i don't you know i kind of I step back sometimes and it's kind of ironic that I'm doing this through social media, right? So I understand sure. the, the irony in this, but, you know, I still try to stand on the firm ground of accurate reporting, uh, telling a story that is appropriate for a four-year-old versus a 20-year-old versus a 60-year-old. I mean, there's different audiences. Mm -hmm. And then how you share that information, how that headline might be posed and again, I'm not an expert in doing that, but I think we can all do a better job with how we transmit information to avoid surges in hospitals. I mean, there's things that people don't realize 
what this causes when a simple story goes viral and we don't really read through all the information or we don't report the most important things and we kind of, you know, maybe let, let that kind of be in the gray area for people to interpret that there's some kind of really bad emergency happening at a university or a school district or a football game or whatever the situation is when that could create really big problems for first responders and healthcare and politicians and anyone else, institutional leaders, it can be, it can take up weeks of your time sure. to put those fires out, which people might be need, needed to do other things during a real emergency. And you mentioned briefly there are universities, and of course, where we sit here, a university, universities around the country are telling students, stay home, we are, we're moving classes online, don't come back. We've seen, obviously, South by Southwest canceled. The schools in Japan have shut down for the rest of the, the term, the year. Um, professional sports leagues are saying right, we right. may play without fans. In Italy, they did that. Then they eventually canceled the, the, the schedule there. This, this practice of, of not quarantine, but this practice of shutting down these mass events, how effective is this? in general, um, at maybe stopping this. And at this time, is it truly necessary? Boy, that's a great, great question. And let me first say, I am not envious of, mm -hmm. of the leaders in different institutions dealing with this process right now. Let me just answer it from a public health perspective. Will, you know, removing people from large events and conferences and other types of institutional situations be effective it certainly will slow it down because what you're doing there is you're removing the opportunity for the virus to have close host jumping so from me to you to other people that are in a large gathering so it it does slow it down does it stop it i don't really think so at this time personally mm -hmm. i mean there's just too many index cases that are geographically spread it's difficult to lock people down you can you know try to isolate and you, you hope people do their their due diligence there but the whole idea around um, you know dealing with that is difficult and I will tell you I have a personal stake in this so my son Landry is doing a study abroad with Trinity University he's in London he's mm -hmm. at the London School of Economics and their semester runs all the way to June 18th so he is you know in the middle of his spring semester he loves it he's doing a great job and, and, and my wife and I have tickets bought to go visit him in early June and then bring him back. Mm -hmm. So we are watching this personally. This is not just a professional kind of opinion. So right now, I actually think it's safer for him to stay there. Uh, there's not many cases in England right now. Uh, you know, he's got his own dorm room. He's going to class and he's going back to the dorm room. And he's kind of in, in Trinity, like most universities, and this is smart. They're not to leave and you try to go to Italy because then you sure. can't, can't get back. So he, he's aware of that. And in so, some instances, as a dad and a, and a virologist, I think he's probably just as safe there as he is getting in an international airport and coming home. Mm -hmm. Now, that's my personal opinion. But it's also backed by kind of logic, right? And, and this is, I'm not speaking for Texas State here, but even the idea around... Um, dealing with spring break, for instance, this is a difficult question because going, I mean, we were all 20 years old, right? And, and we went and did things on spring break. If we could somehow guarantee that every 20 year old is going to go home and stay home for a week or two, then yeah, that could be effective. 
I'm afraid, though, is that it's going to turn into a two or three week spring break mm-hmm. and people are going to mingle and have fun. And and then um, then you may have to make the decision. Do you bring back people or do you leave them out to sure. complete the semester? So I don't know what the answer is. Um, it's a difficult decision. Um, but I will tell you, and this this is something that you know I tell other people, this virus, this cold virus will move through the population, whether we like it or not. Viruses don't care what you look like, you know, how old you are, what culture you are, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, how, how much money you make. They just go through the population, and it's going to ultimately take that collective immune response from the world to kind of stave this off, and it hopefully becomes a normal endemic thing that we're, again, maybe not, you know, worried as much about in a year or two. Going forward with this, what is it that you're specifically going to hone in for and look for in this as this progresses to to really focus on and help you kind of understand where this might be going? Right. So what I'm going to do as a scientist is I'm going to focus in on published studies that are being done. They're coming out more and more. More and more cases are, are available now to study and look at, you know, if there's any primary virulence issues that are changing with this virus is the virus drifting or shifting and we're suddenly seeing fatalities go up in different healthy populations that will be a critical thing we will need to adapt to that i hope it's not going to happen i don't think it's going to happen but we need to plan for that and then the other part is the ongoing message that we need to do globally and certainly in the u.s is protecting the healthcare force protecting those at risk and prioritizing testing around that and how we utilize our prevention uh, techniques. That needs to be ongoing education. We need to think about medicine, supplies, pipelines of supplies, and prioritizing PPE, so masks and gowns and things like that in hospitals because, as you know and you've seen, it's being grabbed by everybody uh, and I, I traveled to Atlanta last week and I saw people wearing masks that weren't wearing them properly, mm-hmm. wasn't even over their nose. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's wasting supplies and the public needs to calm down on that issue on prevention. Healthcare workers need those mm-hmm. patients that are positive need those more than anything. It's not really helpful for you and I to put a mask on. It's more important to cover a sick positive case to keep that spread from coming out of them and then to protect the healthcare worker taking care of them. So last question for you, what key pieces of advice, I suppose, to sum things up that you would give the public who are listening to this, maybe a few things that if they walk away from this, that you would want them to take away and then go tell their friends and family? Sure. Great. I'll, I'll make, I'll mention a few things that I've been writing about regularly and they may have heard of this, but you know, viruses are going to virus. This is a common way that viruses move through the population. It's normal. Be prepared for cases to rise. Be prepared for some more deaths to occur. It's going to happen. We see it all the time. It's just being amplified in the news. The other piece around that is to monitor reputable sources, including CDC, WHO, and the other other independent agencies that I talked about, and then follow the preventive guidelines you are hearing. It's okay, you know, for grandma and grandpa to maybe not go to church for a few weeks. It's okay to maybe not take your grandchildren to see grandma and grandpa Mm -hmm. if they've got the sniffles. Um, And so just kind of common sense health precautions. High touch surfaces is something I've been hammering with people. It's one thing to hand wash, definitely hand wash often. 
but being more diligent and aware of your hands with respect to high-touch surfaces like public touch screens and fast food restaurants, elevators, handrails. If you're going to actually go somewhere and you start handshaking like crazy, be aware of that and immediately go wash your hands or hand sanitizer if it's if water and soap are not available. And just that awareness. And you actually can build muscle memory. It's like anything else. If you do it daily, I've even, now this is a little weird, but I've even told some people, if you're really struggling with this, put a Band-Aid on the tips of your finger, like one on each hand, especially your dominant hand, or something, so that when that thing comes up to rub your eye, you will actually start building memory to put that hand back in your pocket and you know, go wash it. Well, Dr. Rodney Rohde, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. It's a great, great pleasure to be here. Big Ideas TXST is a presentation of Texas State University and the Division of University Advancement. Subscribe to experience more innovative, thought-provoking content. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a starred review, five if possible. The views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily represent those of the university. Big Ideas is hosted by Daniel Seed, produced by Jamie Bloschke, with technical assistance provided by Manuel Garcia. Strategic consultant is Kelly Raz. Special thanks goes out to Dan Schumacher, 